Welcome to Tez Podagogy. When it comes to literacy, we are pretty sure of the building blocks that take us from non-reader to reader and the challenges that can occur along the way. Do we have a similarly sophisticated knowledge of how we develop mathematical ability? To explore this, I'm joined in this episode by Dr. Daniel Ansari, Professor in the Department of Psychology and the Faculty of Education at the University of Western Ontario. He also heads up the Numerical Cognition Laboratory. Hello, Daniel. Hi, John. Uh, Thank you for joining me. Um, I guess it'd be good to start if we could look at whether, I mean, the similarities, I guess, between our concept of number and, and, and the act of reading. Is, is, our, is the act of counting the equivalent of the act of reading in the sense that it's not a natural thing we do? It's something that we've created as, as, as humans to sort of get on? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's a really interesting question and one that uh, researchers in the field of numerical cognition have been grappling with. I think there is no doubt that we share with other species a, a sense of uh, of quantity, and some people have referred to that as an approximate magnitude system, so that we can judge more or less. Uh, um, animals can can have a rough representation of the number of items uh, they're presented with. But I think what is uniquely human are exact numerical abilities. And you mentioned the count sequence, which I think is, is the first foray that children make into a precise uh, representation of number. And we do know that uh, if we look around the world, we know that from uh, the studies of anthropologists, that there are uh, populations scattered around the world that only have count words words for quantities up to three. And beyond that, they say many or more, they use quantifiers. So the count sequence does seem to be something that is uh, uniquely human and that has uh, developed over the course of cultural history. And then, of course, the verbal count sequence gets uh, linked to the visual uh, representation of numerical symbols, uh, such as uh, Hindu-Arabic numerals uh, that uh, are almost a universal uh, visual symbolic representation of number across the world now. So in, in other words, there does seem to be some rudimentary sense of quantity that we're born with, that we share with other species, uh, for which we can also study the brain mechanisms. But it is only humans that have uh, a precise, infinite uh, count sequence to exactly uh, represent the number of items in the set. Does that, when we read a, a number or read a a sequence of numbers, you know, 1,432, for example, off the top of my head. Do we look at, does the brain process that in the same way as we do a word? Or does, do we know that that's not a word and that's a number and that the two are different things on a sort of a process level, if you will? Or do we have that level of knowledge about how that number is processed? I, I don't know whether we do have that level of knowledge. I think um, we understand that processing uh, large numbers such as 1,432, I think you said, requires a lot of um, a lot of different processes. So it requires a good understanding of place value. It, acquire, uh, it involves an understanding of symbolic number. Um, we also don't really know when people are processing such large numbers whether they are um, sort of imagining a, a quantity that's associated with with that or not. Um, so I think it, it is different from processing words, but there isn't a, a lot of research to suggest that number words are processed different differently from written uh, Hindu-Arabic numerals or multi-digit number sequences. 
And do we? You mentioned these anthropological studies and and the fact that the, the these people understand quantity. Is there a sort of innate sense? Let's say we're building a structure. Do we have an, an innate sense of trigonometry, for example, so we know that something a roof's the right angle to meet? Uh, do we have an innate sense of a sense of, of of number, if you like? That I think that's a that's a hotly debated topic in the field. Um, some people argue that we are born with an approximate sense of number uh, so that we are actually we have just like we can perceive colors we can perceive numbers but there's also other research to suggest that uh, maybe it's not numerical quantity that we're born to process but it's all sorts of quantity it's it's uh, length it's height it's density it's uh, area um, and that out of these out of this more generalized magnitude system we build a precise numerical system i think at this point we're still trying to figure out exactly what are the origins of our numerical abilities and there's there's some substantial controversy in the field around that and a lot of active research our recent research suggests that uh, there is a lot of overlap in the brain between being able to, for example, tell which of two daughter rays is larger and being able to tell which of two uh, blobs contains the larger area. So there seems to be some kind of shared uh, quantity system that isn't necessarily precisely numerical and that when we learn numerical symbols, we actually have to, in a way, uh, construct new brain circuits or as Stanislas Dehan says, we have to recycle existing brain circuitry to create a new system, much like what seems to occur when children learn how to read, that essentially they uh, borrow from existing, pre-existing brain structures to construct uh, a new system and to build a reading brain. And some people would argue that the same is true when children acquire symbolic representations of number, starting with count words, then going on to the Hindu-Arabic numerals, that, that they are uh, constructing uh, uh, new brain systems that they weren't uh, born with. How much crossover then is there with something like spatial ability? I mean, we've covered spatial ability quite quite a lot in the sense that it seems to be this growing area where particularly intelligence researchers seem to be focusing quite highly on spatial ability. And I know we've done a lot of work around uh, trying to identify early maths problems and, and spatial ability seems to pop up with quite a lot of researchers. Is Is that the sort of general number sense you're talking about or is that something different to that? I think it's linked to that and there's certainly a lot of research to show that uh, numerical and spatial abilities are closely intertwined in the brain over the course of development and uh, there's lots of exciting new work uh, examining how one can strengthen spatial abilities and how that might transfer to uh, maths learning and to the acquisition of numerical skills. Um, when it comes to the brain, uh, you know, the, the brain areas that are involved in, in number processing, in particular in the parietal cortex, are also involved in spatial processing. One of the things that um, we think is very important, and my graduate student Zach, Zach Hawes has been working a lot on this, 
is that spatial visualization might be incredibly important for maths, that in, in a way you're using uh, your spatial, uh, visual spatial working memory and your spatial representation to form sort of a mental workspace within which you can represent numerical and mathematical relations. So that might be one way of thinking about the relationship between space and number. But I think it's, it's exciting because more and more preschools, at least here in Canada, are focusing on developing students' spatial thinking and that might give them a really important scaffold to, for geometry and more complex uh, numerical spatial relationships and processing those later on. Which brings us, I think, nicely to, to, to a lot of... Uh, we've talked to you before in TEARS, and, and I know you've concentrated on this in your work, about building an equivalent journey to the, to the sort of literacy journey in, in, in number. How did you... When did you first start thinking of, of, a, of a numerical journey in those terms and, and the comparison with, with lit, the, the journey in literacy of sort of early language, uh, phonics, instruction, comprehension, that sort of very um, uh, sort of linear journey through, through the steps of, of, of learning a, 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 con, you know, a discipline, if you like? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I first started thinking about that when I was doing my PhD at UCL. Uh, back in the early 2000s, and I was doing my PhD under the supervision of Annette Kamlov-Smith, and um, we were looking at Williams syndrome, uh, rare genetic developmental disorder, and you probably know that kids with Williams syndrome have relatively good language, but they really have uh, terrible weaknesses when it comes to spatial cognition, and we were trying to see how number fits into that. And that was the first time when I started to think about what, what, you know, if I want to measure numerical abilities in children who have such profound difficulties, I really can't give them, you know, lots of arithmetic problems. I've got to dig deeper and ask questions about what underlies arithmetic. What are some of the key components that need to be in place for kids to even learn this skill? And that's where the analogy to phonological awareness, uh, you know, uh, really became apparent to me. And Russell Gersten um, published a paper on, on this comparison at the time, and Brian Butterworth was working on, on this idea as well in Dyscalculia. And then uh, at the same time, the field of numerical cognition was growing, and people were really hopeful that we could discover this basic underlying number sense. You know, Stanislas Dehan had published a wonderful book called The Number Sense in 1997. So all of those things sort of came together, but it quickly became apparent that uh, it, it probably isn't as straightforward as it is in reading because maths is so many things, you know, and as my math educator friends will remind me, number is only one of the many things that makes up uh, the domain of math. So um, we then, I then decided when I opened my own uh, research laboratory that I would focus specifically on the origins of number because that was a complex enough problem to be tackling with yeah. to try and understand whether something like you know, children's ability to compare which of two daughter rays is larger is an important scaffold of their later maths abilities. And the conclusion or the, the, the sort of where we're going now is more and more towards understanding how children learn numerical symbols and how that provides an important scaffold and how learning numerical symbols is a really complex thing because not only do you have to learn how 
what, say, the Arabic numeral five means in terms of the quantity representation, but you also have to be able to recognize that. You have to be able to transcode that visual symbol into its verbal representation. You have to understand something about its ordinal position. So we're trying to tackle, you know, all of these different ways of processing numerical symbols uh, as a means to better understand which of these uh, processing aspects is most important for math learning and using that as well to inform screening and uh, not diagnosis but potentially identifying children who might be at risk of developing mathematical difficulties. So that's sort of been the journey and, and we're still very much on it. Do you think, I mean I don't know if you've uncovered this yet, but does a, does a child uh, is it is the trajectory at the moment that they understand the notion of number that you know uh, count first of all is it a case of like counting number blocks putting them on top of each other one two three and then they don't really know what that means and eventually they understand that that means the 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 three or something or four or something and then eventually they recognise that that corresponds to a to a, to a to a sort of a written number or is it is 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 it all over the place? Do children get stuff at different different times at different levels, and one doesn't necessarily have to come before the other? I I definitely think that you know uh, child development is is not linear. It's not neat. It isn't universal across children. Uh, when it comes to the development of counting and the understanding of the meaning of counting, what some people refer to as the cardinality principle, I do think we have quite good evidence that in most children, their ability to recite the count sequence comes before their understanding of the meaning of the count sequence. And that tends to be a very gradual process whereby children first become one knowers, so they know uh, that one refers to one item, then they become two knowers, three knowers, four knowers, and eventually they become what we refer to as cardinality principle knowers. And that's, that transition from sort of a procedural ability to count, but not really understanding what that means, to, to having an understanding that counting determines quantity, I think it's one of the most fundamental steps in early numeracy development, which children make roughly between the age of two and a half up to about five, because there's a huge amount of variability in when children uh, make that leap from being able to recite the count sequence to understanding uh, what the purpose of counting is. And does, a, does when you introduce the, the, the written numerical uh, representation, if you, if, you, if you like, does that matter as such? Do, do you want to be introducing that? once they've grasped the concept, the counting and, and understanding what the counting is, or would it matter if you put that at the front of the process? So like you're showing a child number one, as you're saying, this is a one block, and you're showing them a number two, as you're saying, look, you've got two now. Is there any sort of, is that too granular at the moment, that sort of knowledge? No, I, I think I think the most important thing early on when it comes to the development of number is, is in, in my in my view, from what we know from research, is first developing an understanding of the verbal number sequence, and then introducing uh, a written number symbols after that. And at that point, it it really is very much a process of transcoding because you have already uh, developed a representation of cardinality for the spoken number words, and now you're just mapping that onto onto the written symbols. But what research is uh, showing, uh, research for example by Silke Goebel at York University and Charles Hume and David Purpura uh, over in the United States at Purdue University is that 
children's ability to name Arabic numerals, their ability to associate uh, Arabic numerals with quantities is a really critical predictor of their ability to make the transition from informal to formal education, in other words, from preschool to grade one or kindergarten to grade one. So there does seem to be something about uh, having some rudimentary understanding of numerical symbols, being able to recognize them, that gives children a sort of slight advantage uh, when they transition into into formal education. Um, And I think that is very much because when children enter primary school, when they enter grade one, they are expected to have that knowledge and they're expected to be able to uh, use numerical symbols to engage in arithmetic operations uh, using those numerical symbols. So I think there is something to be said for introducing those symbols early, but only introducing them once children have an understanding of the verbal number words, have, have an understanding in the sense that they know that four represents all possible sets of four in the world. And that takes time, developing that understanding. So maybe not starting with the Arabic numerals, but starting with the number words, starting with the count sequence, developing that understanding of cardinality, and then providing children with an opportunity to map their verbal representations onto the visual ones. It's interesting you say that this, the, the part of the reason that these children can, it's a good predictor is that when they reach a, a grade one or a, or a year one primary class, they're expected to, to deal with numerical values in, in, in the written form. And I guess it's similar to, to, to reading in that sense that you can be a, a very good oral speaker and come unstuck because you're expected to, to read suddenly. Is, is there a case that in maths that assessing a child's ability away from those uh, written new number values may give you a better insight or, or a different insight into their actual maths ability at that point. If you are, you are you are we judging them when they get to school by a measure that that might not be that accurate in judging their actual maths ability? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting idea, and I certainly think we shouldn't think too narrowly about um, ways of getting an idea of what children know about. Uh, maths, number, numerical relations earlier in primary school, and that there should be, you know, still use of manipulatives to assess their understanding for teachers to get an insight into how they're thinking about quantity. I do think that is important because um, as with reading, children come into the early years with, you know, huge variability in their knowledge, huge variability in their skills. And we need to give children who may have not had the opportunity in their homes to learn Arabic numerals an opportunity to show what else they might know about quantity so that we can, that, so that teachers can scaffold uh, them adequately. I do think that is, that is necessary. And we talked about, you know, children's understanding of, of space, space and spatial relations early on. And I think that should be part of what, what uh, teachers uh, look at in, in the early grades as well, um, because maybe a child, you know, spend a lot of time uh, learning spatial relations and less uh, learning uh, Arabic numerals, and and they should uh, they should also be acknowledged for what they know and and uh, uh, given opportunities to to grow their knowledge. It's interesting you said as well about that the fact that the, the the development trajectory is not linear, and you know you can have quite great variability in up to the age of five and a half. And I guess in those education systems where children are introduced to to the numerical values at, at, um, written numerical values at, at seven or six. 
that that they that you, you you get some some stabilization i guess but in in this country where they they are entering you know one child could you know, could have just turned four for example when they've started their reception year it strikes me that actually we've got a, a unique or, or you know countries that will start earlier are perhaps very different in how they might have to approach number yes yes i agree i agree and and um and in, across all countries, education systems uh, realize that the children come in with huge variability no matter what age they start at. Um, um, but, you know, I think we also need to recognize that the non-linearities of development and the, the huge amount of individual differences, and that's, that's very challenging for uh, early childhood educators, for teachers working with young children. Um, but I guess there's lots of opportunities uh, to uh, not necessarily close the gap, but to uh, make sure that all children uh, are roughly on the same page before they transition into into the early primary grades. Uh, but yeah, here in Canada, for example, you know, four-year-olds, uh, uh, most of them are uh, still in daycare facilities, or some of them are in what we call junior kindergarten. But it's it's very much play based. It's not formalized. There is no, uh, you know, no kind of standardized testing of of their abilities. So there are going to be uh, diff cross national differences uh, for sure. Do you think that, as you say, you're, you know, you're you're at that age, their education is still play based in 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 those uh, in in Canada and, and other places, especially in Scandinavia and in this country, our reception classes are becoming more formalized. There is a debate here about how we teach maths and how much direct teaching of maths we do and how much play-based teaching of maths we do. So, you know, do we go into, you know, the provision and we see the child's um, playing with blocks and we introduce the concepts of counting via the blocks or do we sit them at a table and say, tell them what, what, <laughs> what the counting process is? Is there any evidence one or the other is better? What age is appropriate to make that shift? Mm -hmm. I think that's still very much um, a topic of debate, and people are, you know, trying to run good empirical studies to compare different approaches. I think when it comes to play-based, I think uh, one of the common misunderstandings, I think, is that play-based implies a purely constructivist approach to education. It's one in which children discover concepts through play. But I think some of the most effective play-based work is when teachers are using a play as an opportunity to actually carry out direct instruction, uh, to direct children's attention, for example, to numerical relations. So I think just free play is probably unlikely to lead to great leaps in the kinds of conceptual development that we might want from children in the early years in order to prepare them for what comes next. Uh, but a combination of play and intentional instruction, I think, can be very effective, but I think is also extremely challenging for, for educators. Uh, I see that a lot here uh, in Ontario, you know, that uh, uh, the school boards are doing a lot of work with their teachers and early childhood educators to get them to think about how they can be uh, 
participants in the play in a way that allows them to uh, direct children's attention to to important concepts. So I think it's uh, play-based learning is is very attractive. It's also very challenging. So I think we'll see more and more work in this area emerging as more and more countries are moving towards uh, play-based uh, learning rather than you know sitting children down and as you say just telling them uh, about certain concepts and uh, I think certainly the play-based can be more engaging for children and maybe more age-appropriate but I do think it needs to be intentional it can't just be here is you know a set of blocks now go away and play with it and we expect you to develop a concept of number I don't think that is possible I think there still needs to be an element of direct instruction that is embedded within the play based activities and that of course depends on what the materials that the teachers chooses for the children and how they sort of direct that play subtly at least mm. and is there a similar point where say in reading this child can decode they are they are moving through a text uh, fluently and then we have to say okay do they comprehend what they're actually reading and and there's this point in in the UK we've covered it with quite a few academics here where we've got really good at, at getting kids to the point they're reading fluently in terms of decoding where the research is perhaps lacking and where perhaps the um the we, we haven't got quite as accomplished we do lots of good work don't get me wrong but we, we're perhaps not as accomplished at the comprehension element okay how do we ensure these kids are understanding it and and how do we make how do we teach them to understand it if you like is there a similar moment in maths where we're saying okay they, they're doing one plus one is two and they're, they're doing you know even some basic times tables but how much do we know about comprehension at that point mm -hmm. yeah this sort of uh, procedural versus conceptual understanding or skills versus comprehension debate is very much alive in the math world as well um, and I don't think there is a simple answer to this I think um, what research from psychology has shown and science of learning is that it's very hard to separate uh, procedural skills from conceptual understanding and that they are iterative rela iteratively related to one another, much like they are in reading as well. Um, I do think, and this is just from my vantage point, that there is a degree to which a certain uh, tool, children need to be given a certain toolbox of skills in order to begin the process of understanding, for example, the inverse relationship between addition and subtraction. I haven't seen any compelling evidence to suggest that starting with understanding uh, is going to accelerate the learning process. Um, so there is, to some degree, a skills first. It's a bit like what we discussed earlier with the count sequence. You've got to be able to recite the count sequence and then you can start to discover or start to begin to learn uh, what that means. And I think that goes for many other uh, mathematical concepts as well. But it's, it's a, you know, what some people refer to as the math wars. It's, it's a debate that goes on daily on social media and uh, in journals and, uh, and, and in, in school boards and I'm sure in teacher classrooms. It's how do we, how do we best teach children an understanding of math, but also give them the skills so that later on in their lives they can quickly calculate something, they can uh, have a, a, a good sense of, of estimation and so forth. So I don't really have a resolution to that question, but it is, it is, incredibly, it is incredibly difficult. I mean, here in Ontario, for example, uh, 
few years ago, the curriculum shifted very much towards an emphasis on understanding. And um, there's been lots of debates on what the consequences of that have been. Uh, what I I've, I've hear quite often is that, much like what we discussed with play-based learning, implementing a curriculum that focuses on the understanding is incredibly hard because what you need are teachers who are very skilled, who themselves have very good mathematical knowledge, who understand the maths themselves. And those teachers are the most likely to be able to uh, cultivate a rich understanding of mathematical concepts in their students. And do you think then that you 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 seem to have a, a good idea of of the of the steps? And you mentioned previously about screening. Are there are there points in that journey where teachers or other professionals can locate potential challenges for that child is going to have? Um, be that through observation, be that through some sort of assessment, where we can begin to unpick. Uh, numerical challenges in the same way we can unpick reading challenges around dyslexia, developmental language disorder, these sort of you know, language problems in general, the equivalent of that in maths, or are we some far, some distance away from, from that sort of diagnostic tool, if, if you like? Mm-hmm. I certainly think that we are further away than developmental language difficulties or developmental dyslexia. Uh, simply because the empirical work there has a much longer history uh, than in the domain of maths. But I do think we're making progress towards identifying some of the key building blocks of certain aspects of maths that we can screen for early on. So I'm thinking about some of the work that we and others have done around um, being able to recognize numerals, being able to judge which of two numerals is larger. And we're seeing some fairly good evidence that that is predictive of later math skills and that um, you know these kinds of measures can discriminate between children with and without math difficulties. But just like it's the case for dyslexia, I think one needs to be aware that if one screens early on, you know, you may have a child in front of you who looks like they might be at risk. But because of the non-linearities of development and how things change, that child six months later might be, you know, excelling in in their basic numerical skills. So I think one needs to be very careful about uh, sort of putting children into certain categories at an early age on the basis of a screener. And I don't think we have screeners that are sufficiently sensitive at this point to really make a diagnosis. But one of the things that I think would be useful in the early years uh, is for really to explicitly test children's understanding of cardinality. Uh, we've, we've done a project recently, just a pilot project with one of the school boards here, where all the kids in, in junior kindergarten uh, were given a task that assesses their understanding of the cardinality principle of the meaning of counting. And one thing that was really great was that uh, teachers found this to be very useful for them because they could then say, you know, this child has the cardinality principle, this child doesn't yet. So how can I, you know, work with that child to uh, to bring them to the same level as the children who have the cardinality principle? So I think if there are certain uh, quick screeners, uh, quick uh, diagnostic tests that can help teachers to understand whether children have a certain key mathematical concept or not, then we should be implementing that. And if it's useful for teachers, if it can guide their instruction, I think that should be the objective. 
Did you get any feedback from those teachers as to whether the, the students identified as, as, as struggling were the ones they suspected would be struggling or had, had an intuition that, that were struggling with that or, or were there surprises in those results? Mostly it was uh, the case that teachers would tell us this confirms what I already sensed. And I always say, well, that's great. You know, if we can sort of work together uh, and and combine your intuition with uh, a measure that's evidence-informed, then I think uh, we have a much more powerful basis from which to make decisions about the future instruction of that child. But we did a project with the Toronto District School Board where we actually worked with 500 students and we screened them on a variety of basic numerical competencies. And we did some professional development in, at the front end. And then at the back end, we produced uh, for each teacher a report of students in their classroom. And we showed them uh, where their student was within the overall distribution of students that we had tested. And uh, I went around the tables and talked to teachers, and a lot of them said, this, this is great because it, it already it kind of confirms what I knew. There's some cases where I'm a little bit surprised, but mostly I knew this, and it, it sort of um, gives me um, added conviction in what I'm doing and, and how, I'm self, how I'm diagnosing my students, and it supports my work. So I think it can be professionally enriching from that point of view as well. Do you find uh, in the uh, in the work you do with teachers, especially in in Canada, I guess if if the school starting is it six the school starting age in Canada? Um, yes, yeah, so we have we have uh, junior kindergarten which starts at four, which is very play based, and senior kindergarten five to six, and then yes, yeah, six would be grade one. Do you find that that introducing a more formal maths education at the age of six? is working for those teachers? Do they wish that some of those children have been challenged more with a more formal thing before? Do they think some kids at six are, are, are not quite ready for that? I'm trying to get a gauge of whether, you know, from teachers in this country when they're starting at four and just turned five, that, that they tend to, not, not everyone, but in that sector, they tend to argue that, you know, they're not ready for, for very formal education in maths or English at that point. At six, are the teachers more happy with the situation? I, you know, I think the opinions vary a lot, uh, and this is just this is not an empirical observation. This is just my informal, you know, talking to teachers. I think some teachers are very much in favor of the move to play-based uh, education, and others say no. These kids do not come into the classroom with the building blocks that I expected. And then, of course, as with everything in education. It depends on the implementation. You know, we can put a label on it. We can say this is play-based learning, but teachers are going to differ in their interpretation of that. And so you might have one teacher who does play-based learning in one way, you know, which is very free and open and constructivist in approach, and another that sort of balances play with with direct instruction. So I think it's it's very hard to tell. Um, you know, what the effects of having more of a play-based curriculum are. And I think there is no natural control group. Maybe it's cross-national comparisons that are the yeah. way of, of exploring that. But um, so I, I've heard a variety of opinions expressed. And some grade one classrooms are still, you know, uh, still using elements of play-based instruction. I, the one thing that I do think I've universally heard is, 
and this is, I think, true of, of many educational systems, is that, the, that there isn't enough crosstalk between the kindergarten teachers and the grade one, grade two teachers, that often these things aren't integrated well enough. And that is a huge transition for children in all domains of learning to make between kindergarten and grade one. So I think one thing that would be helpful if it can be implemented is to have more conversations between teachers in kindergarten and teachers in grade one so that they know um, what students are coming through the system, uh, that they can be alerted to particular students who are experiencing difficulties or students who are really excelling. But, you know, I also understand that teachers have a lot on their plate and that this is one of the many things that they would like to do but probably don't have enough time to do. Yeah, I think, I think you'd, uh, you'd get a lot of agreement on that point. Um, that's been fascinating, Daniel. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, John. Audi de vos rêves se trouve déjà près de chez vous. Choisissez le modèle qui vous fait rêver et profitez-en immédiatement. Audi s'engage aujourd'hui à vos côtés avec Audi pour vous. Un ensemble d'offres et de services pour vous aider à mieux repartir. En ce moment, jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer vous sont offerts sur une sélection de modèles disponibles en stock. Découvrez l'ensemble de nos engagements Audi pour vous sur Audi.fr. Offre jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer suivant le premier versement offert. Offre LLD à particulier jusqu'au 30 juin 2020 sur 37 mois et 25 000 km par an maximum sur une sélection de véhicules en stock et si acceptation par Volkswagen Bank. Détails sur Audi.fr.